I'm Jeff Saperstein, co-author with Hunter Hastings of the book, The Interconnected Individual, Seizing Opportunity in the Era of AI Platforms, Apps, and Global Exchanges. As an interconnected individual, you'll want to know how cutting-edge thinking can help you design, implement, manage, and enjoy your own individual economy. Hunter Hastings and I are talking with Elizabeth Isel, founder and CEO of the Global Institute for Experienced Entrepreneurship based in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth is recognized globally as a pioneering senior entrepreneurship expert. She is leading the transformation of the culture of aging and retirement. Her passion is to ignite an experienced economy by unleashing the potential of cross-generational experience to drive social and economic impact, and that's grounded in data and metrics. Their mission is to empower cross-generational experience through entrepreneurial thinking and acting to drive successful innovation within corporations, governments, education, and research to boost social and economic prosperity worldwide. Working across sectors, education, finance, public policy, and research, they are creating systems to boost economic reliance, vitality, and growth. Such a wonderful mission. So let's begin. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Jeff and Hunter. Thank you both. It's really an honor to be included among the thought leaders you have brought together to share insights on how to develop what I consider your brilliant thesis on the essential value of interconnectedness in our society today. Like you, we at GIEE strive to break barriers, break down silos, and connect the dots to create opportunities to advance society's culture and work together. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Um, so let's dive in. Uh, you've devoted a great deal of your energy and experience to bridging the gap between the generations of entrepreneurs. Can you briefly explain how GIEE specifically works to create these productive experiential transfers between people? That's a very interesting question and one that is really, again, has a strong basis in your book and in the interconnected thesis because what we have found is that the most successful entrepreneurs learn to create the conditions that allow them to succeed. And often that means weaving a new social and institutional fabric that benefits the entire ecosystem that they work within. I actually call it cultural brokerage. And when it's done right, the creation of an institutional infrastructure is inherently a collaborative enterprise. And this does not happen what we have found, without focus and direction. You simply cannot bring generations or different cross-sectors of society together in some kind of kumbaya moment. It has to have focus and directions. And, and what is most beneficial for my organization today is that while we have been speaking about this with passion since 2012, uh, it is now taking on an even greater momentum as societies are realizing that the demographics are forcing this issue in both work and society. Even on the Today Show, the Sunday, for example, they mentioned that one in five American households are now multi-generational. But in businesses where we work primarily, uh, and governments and education, recruitment, engagement, and retention 
are the critical factors to business success. And data has demonstrated that multi-generational workforces are, number one, more engaged, more productive, and more likely the individuals in a multi-generational workforce are more likely to stay longer. So businesses are now becoming more and more eager to find out how they can adjust their workplace environment and their workforce accordingly to generate this. That's terrific, Elizabeth. It sounds like the trend is your friend in terms of your mission. And this intergenerational work is something that is sought by both uh, older and younger people. And so specifically, how do you match people to work together? And what are the mechanisms that you utilize so that individuals are working uh, with the best people that are right for them? Well, any kind of what I consider a transformational innovation such as this run into adoption barriers. So the most important and most critical asset we have is to build trust and to build trust amongst different individuals from different sectors, from different ages, from different cultural groups. Uh, and, and the way in which we build trust is we really cannot tell people to trust one another. We cannot tell people to value the experience of another generation. What we do is we really set up specific environments where people are brought together, focused on an idea or a mission or learning experience. My first foray into intergenerational scenarios like that was uh, the nonprofit. My first venture into entrepreneurship was founding a nonprofit called Cyber Seniors. And I started with 12 seniors in Portland, Maine, and grew that to more than 25,000 seniors nationwide in five years. But the success of that program was really because of the student-teacher ratio. And I specifically limited each of the workshops to 10 to 12 seniors. And there was one young person there to help the seniors. And it was, so we were, number one, the seniors came because they were dying to learn about the technology. And we managed to corral the young people into the workshops because I went to the Department of Education and I said, you have all these um, community work benefits for students and you have all these different community work opportunities. I said, could they fulfill that requirement by coming to our workshops and helping seniors learn about technology? And so fortunately, the, the education system agreed, and we brought the young people in. And as you say, how do you structure this? At first, the both generations were incredibly skeptical of the other. The older people viewed the younger people with huge skepticism and the younger people, quite frankly, just looked on the older people like a bunch of old fogies. But when we brought them into that environment where, as we set out in the very beginning, this is not a teaching environment, this is a learning environment. And for all the young people, we're not there to teach seniors how to use the technology, but to help them learn how to use the technology. And the cross experience of the young people bringing all their technology expertise to the seniors who had specific reasons for wanting to use the technology really generated an incredible dialogue between the generations. And, and one of the greatest offshoots was 
that this, this program received funding from the National Institutes of Health because they wanted to study how access to technology would enhance seniors' uh, health and well-being. And we did that, and we followed the study, and we created the data, and of course, we're not at all surprised that it did enhance seniors' health and well-being to have access to information about how to take care of their health and what health was and what hospitals were, et cetera. What we had never anticipated was the impact on the young people in the classes and, and what the young people learned from helping seniors research uh, about different health conditions, about different ways to really stay healthy and keep a healthy lifestyle. And the other part, of course, was the young people were sitting beside the manifestations of their health behaviors, whether they were smokers or drinkers or whatever, their unhealthy habits were, were manifest beside them. And so all of a sudden, both parties in that room had a reason to learn about this. And, and that's when you can engage people around a topic or a subject or a passion or a desire, then you will get this spontaneous learning across generations. Nothing, it cannot be forced. You cannot set up a workshop and say, well, let's all come together and see how we can solve this. That won't work. You have to indirectly bring the generations together and uh, find a common reason for them all to be there and a common benefit for all parties. You know, Elizabeth, this is a, such a wonderful approach. It, it sounds like you're allowing for emergent rather than prescriptive solutions, uh, that it's relational, it's built on empathy that is developed between people and people. The engagement of individuals leads to things that may be unanticipated, and you're allowing for spontaneity. All of these things sound uh, very humanistic, holistic, and very exciting. I could not articulate that better. I'm going to have to go back into this so I can copy down that statement, Jeff, because it's it really <clears throat> amazingly articulates what we're all about. And in the same way for entrepreneurship, it's the same kind of uh, really dynamic between the different generations. And, and in, we have specific workshops in which we really crowdsource ideas. We have workshops that we call experience incubators where we have different speed mentoring. We have idea bounce workshops and we have something called a quick service incubator where entrepreneurs of any age can bring in a specific business challenge that they're dealing with. And they present it to a very diverse and activated audience who comes voluntarily. And then that small group audience, they break into even smaller groups so they can really rapidly ideate and pitch ideas back to the person that did the original uh, entrepreneurship challenge pitch. So it's it's, it's very reciprocal. So the people in the room are sharing their insights and the people that are presenting to the room get that incredible feedback. So it's, it's really multidisciplinary problem solving and learning for the whole room. And again, it's that trust. Once you build an environment like that and people realize that uh, it doesn't always sound the best of intentions, but people really want to make certain that they're going to gain something from any experience that they 
assign their time to. So if you can build an environment, develop a reputation, we did one of these idea bounces in St. Louis, Missouri, in a fabulous uh, business incubator that they have in St. Louis. And it took a while to persuade them to let senior entrepreneurs participate in this idea bounce. And uh, it was enormously successful. All their other idea bounces with young people presenting to other young people had uh, maybe, there would be maybe four different entrepreneurs presenting and the audience was usually composed of uh, maybe 14 people from the community and their families who were interested in the ideas. And the evening that we had seniors presenting their ideas, we had over 400 people in the room and the, the people at the incubator were absolutely stunned that this was a whole audience that was really interested in eager entrepreneurship that they hadn't even tapped into yet. So it was a win for us in terms of my passion it was a win for the senior entrepreneurs, but it's also a win for the incubator because the incubator realized they have a whole new market opportunity. So again, it's a win, win, win. And whenever you can establish that, uh, the benefits for everyone are enormous. Well, Elizabeth, I can hear uh, from your passion and your energy that uh, you just bring so much to this and receive so much uh, from this effort. And I'm going to turn this over now to Hunter so that he can conduct the interview with some other questions. Uh, but clearly you have found, uh, you have found your bliss and uh, thank you so much for doing so much. I have found it indeed. I am one of the recipients of this incredible dynamic and, and it really energizes me in, in ways that I had never anticipated. Well, Elizabeth, I do a lot of work with young entrepreneurs, both in venture capital and through the small business administration here in the U.S. And the thing that excited me when I read about your work was the thought that experience is the one asset that young entrepreneurs lack. In our book, Jeff and I talk about them having access to all the knowledge in the world, all the technological resources, all the supply chain elements and go-to-market components through interconnectedness that we've been talking about, but none of that includes experience. So tell us a little bit more about thinking about young entrepreneurs, how important it is for them to interconnect to experience in their entrepreneurial recipe. How can we get them to kind of embrace it and understand it? And how can we help them with interconnecting to experience? I think one of the most important ways to connect young people to experience is really to describe it in their own language. And they need to understand that experience is a currency. And that currency carries a huge competitive advantage because all the knowledge in the world and access to all the knowledge in the world is useless without imagination and curiosity and willingness to play with ideas. Innovation doesn't come from knowledge. Innovation comes from imagination, curiosity. And one of my favorite quotes is uh, from George Bernard Shaw when he said, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. <laughs> so it's the, the essential is that experience is something that 
is evolving and develops. And, and for young people to miss that is tragic because the experience that an older person brings into the room, whether it's an accelerator, whether it's education system, whatever, is uh, it's built from their knowing what works and what doesn't work. And what a huge advantage for an entrepreneur to have someone know that one of their ideas already doesn't work. Somebody else has tested it and it doesn't work. And, and the other really valuable part of experience is their work in testing ideas and overcoming failures really mitigates a lot of the risk. So you have mitigated the risk and you also have someone who's extraordinarily resilient. They, they know what works, what doesn't work, but they also know how they have overcome what didn't work. So that's another huge aspect. And it, it also the aspect of experience comes with years of experience in building relationships and developing networks and the experience of understanding. And this is one of the most crucial factors for young people to understand that you cannot do it all by yourself. Entrepreneurs can be idea people, they can be systems people, they can be design people, execution people, etc. And each role is essential. But you, if you try to spread yourself and do all of it, your, your whole business idea is going to implode. So what you really need to do is reach out to people with experience who can help you uh, move that idea forward or really be honest with you if that's not an idea that's worth moving forward and save you tons of money and time in exploring something that's already been tested and proven invalid. We talk about one of the most important things for any entrepreneur of any age to develop is a brain trust. And we say, this is really like the board of directors that you can't afford. The brain trust is an group of individuals, a group of experts with experience, be it finance, HR, public relations, marketing, whatever. Whatever those skills you don't have, to reach out and find individuals who do have those skills, who will be incredibly honest with you. As we say, don't think of your friends or your family who will be reluctant to tell you that this is a rotten idea. You really need to reach out to people that will tell you whether it is a good idea or not a good idea. And again, it's, it's that element of trust that is so critical in these intergenerational relationships. Yeah, I think a lot of the language of failure that uh, we talk about certainly here in America and in Silicon Valley is really a lack of experience or it represents the steps on the way to experience. And if you can skip some of those, obviously you, you do have, as you say, a competitive advantage. It's a, it's a big insight. Well, and it's also the fact that they're sitting beside someone who's overcome what they might consider an insurmountable failure. And again, it's, it's the whole construct of bringing these people together has to be around problem solving. Uh, there's a wonderful incubator in Washington, D.C. called 1776. And one of the older senior entrepreneurs that we have worked with over the years is in his 90s. And he actually used to work for the World Bank. But he heard about this incubator and he said, I'd really like to be a part of that or see what's happening. 
And the incubator people said, fine. Uh, they were a little, you know, they weren't quite sure what was going to happen with a 90-year-old in the midst of all these younger people. But um, so he went in and had an office space of his own and just sort of sat there for weeks, if not months, before really interconnecting with people. And then one day, some young person asked him, he said, did you ever have, you know, such and such experience in the financial markets? And of course, this individual could speak volumes about that experience. And so the younger person goes back and tells his cohorts. And then all of, now this man has like, has to take appointments for people to come and, and speak with them just so he can give each person enough time. But his life is enormously enhanced by this incredible renewed sense of relevance and contributing in this world. And the younger people suddenly realize they have this phenomenal font of experience that they can tap into right there. So it's just, it's really remarkable. But it's, as we said earlier, it's never something you can force it. Someone has to start with a question. Socrates had it right. And it doesn't really matter what the answers are. You really have to know the questions to ask. And that's what builds knowledge and wisdom. You've talked a lot, Elizabeth, about ideas and what works and what doesn't. But I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into some of the analytics of experience sharing. So is it, for example, general experience or knowledge about how to be an entrepreneur, what, the, what that experience is like? Or is it preparing to be an entrepreneur, perhaps before you leave a, a current job? Or is it in specific fields like finance and fundraising or building a product or, as you say, building a network of partnerships or about hiring and building a team that complements the entrepreneur's strengths and balances their weaknesses? You talked about that a little bit. Have you been able to identify any patterns or analytics about which type of experiential knowledge is, is most beneficial? Yes, we have some analytics, uh, but most of it is, is most of the data has been derived from our own experience in workshops. And from our own experience, I can say that all of the things that you mentioned are things that people can learn from a book. They can learn from a book or they can learn from a mentor. It's what the most dynamic aspect of our work and the most critical aspect is not teaching people the finances of starting a business or any of those very important things that you mentioned. It's really instilling the confidence in people that they can do it. The, the word entrepreneur can be very intimidating. And so one of our primary missions, and we learned this very early on uh, when we were doing a workshop at Brown University in uh, Rhode Island, that uh, we have to help people decode their entrepreneurial history. If they're intimidated by the word entrepreneurship, they're in no way going to think, you know, that they could start a business or that they have the ability to start a business. So what we do in, in decoding their entrepreneurial history is take people back decade by decade through their life and have them identify an experience that they really loved or that they were very proud of or was extraordinarily meaningful to them and present those experiences to the group. And then, then we have those, we have them break down that experience in terms of what resources did you need to make that re experience happen? Uh, what, what 
who helped you make it happen? What was the impact of, of what you did? And it starts with the smallest nuggets because in order to take the intimidation out, people uh, really don't understand that they've been thinking and un acting entrepreneurially. And, and a prime example of that was what we call the red wagon story, which was about a woman who, and, and what's really interesting is that the most entrepreneurial experiences take place in the first decade of a person's life, which is really sort of ties into the horrific data we have about the education system in the United States, you know, squashing curiosity. Um, the, the red wagon story is about a young woman uh, who had a little red wagon and she was uh, started pulling weed, her chore, her family chore was pulling weeds. So she'd use her wagon to pick up the weeds and move them around the yard and take them to the, to wherever she uh, repurposed them. And uh, so she, uh, her father paid her a penny a weed to pull the weeds. And her neighbor leaned over the fence and asked what she was doing. She said, pulling weeds. And my daddy pays me for that. And he said, how much? <laughs> and the woman said, a penny a weed. And he said, I'll pay you two cents a week if you pull them in my yard, too. <laughs> and so it kept, it's so interesting. And then the neighbor on the other side caught wind of this. And all of a sudden, she realized that she was actually making money from pulling these weeds. So she had always been, her aspiration was she wanted this red bicycle she'd seen in the store window in, in town for a long time. And so suddenly she realized she was saving for this red bicycle. And as she moved up and down the street, she wasn't old enough to cross the street. She moved up and down the street, building this business and saving more money. Finally, she had enough money to buy that red bicycle. And she bought the bicycle. She attached a red wagon to it and could go totally around the block. And everybody in the room just sort of sat there in amazement as she's sharing this story. And as we said, that's the whole concept of not only starting a business, but scaling a business. And, and I said, that's just a brilliant example of something you did as a child. And, and fascinating examples have come up like that. And, but it's all, one of the difficult challenges too is to make our work contextual for people. We work all around the world with different populations. And and another, and again, this is sort of a long-winded explanation about building their confidence. One of my most challenging engagements was in Japan, uh, where I was speaking before a group of women talking about entrepreneurship. And in Japan, still 70% of the women leave the workforce when they have children and never come back. So they think they have no business or entrepreneurial skills whatsoever. And I thought, well, how am I going to address this group in a way that's meaningful for them? By some miracle, just about a week before I went over there, there was this incredible article in the New York Times about the elaborate Japanese bento boxes. And uh, I saw the picture of this bento box and I thought, that's it. So after all these different data points and everything else I was talking about on the screens about entrepreneurship, I flashed this one picture of this beautiful bento box on the screen. Everybody goes, oh, you know, they instantly knew what that was. And I said, how many women in this room have created a bento box for their child's lunch? Of course, everybody's hands went up. I said, how many of you have 
understood what your child will eat in that bento box. Everybody's hand went up. They knew what they would eat and what they wouldn't eat. And I said, now this is the toughest question of all. I said, how many people, and I said, you have to be honest. And the translator was getting hysterical. I said, you have to be honest, but I want you to tell me, raise your hand, if you did not want your child's bento box to be more beautiful than anybody else's in that classroom. And everybody's hand went up and they got it. And so it's, it's again, it's, it's making it relevant to the audience, but it's to the first, your first question about what is it about our work that's most uh, significant. And it really is showing people that they have been thinking entrepreneurially. They've just never identified as an entrepreneur. So they can think about whatever they want to do in terms of creating a business or just re-entering the career world. It's, it's, it's all about entrepreneurial thinking and acting and basing it on that. And that's where they get their confidence. And then they can go out and learn all the other pragmatic things they need to do about starting a business. But they'll never learn those without the confidence that they first need. Uh, that's a lovely example, and Jeff and I are big fans of the idea that everybody can be, and often they are, an entrepreneur, and your bento box illustration is a great example. So thank you. Hey, one last question, Elizabeth. There's a lot of discussion now about online education and online uh, techniques for learning, and I wonder if we can apply that in uh, mentoring and, and experience sharing. So. We always stress that young entrepreneurs can connect with anyone online. So theoretically, that would include a, a mentor or an experience sharing uh, person who could, they could connect with. And we were talking with Jim Sporer of IBM's Open AI Project, who is also our book editor. He was talking about some terrific techniques that help aspiring young people to get the most out of the a mentor relationship. He talked about good preparation. You know, don't, don't just wander into it. Think hard about what you want to get out of it. Read everything that the mentor has written. Watch their YouTubes and, and so on so that you know what the mentor knows, the experienced person knows, and then you can ask better and more penetrating questions. But that was all about in-person meetings. And I think a lot of what you've been talking about, workshops and so on, feel like it's it's in person. So is it even possible to do some of this experience sharing online? And, and if so, what kind of techniques have you learned? It's, it's challenging to share it online. And it's really challenging because you don't have that personal dynamic. You don't have the aha moment where every Japanese woman in the room raised her hand about wanting to have the best bento box mm -hmm. ever. You, there's a different kind of energy. and it's. Um, you can do it. It is connecting, but it's a much more static connection, if you will, and it's more one-on-one -on -one connection. You just, when we have an idea bouncer, an experience incubator workshop, the energy in the room is incredibly contagious, and that's, that's really what we build on. We, we haven't cracked that nut yet and how to translate that to an online experience because it's also, uh, the online experience, again, you have that whole contextual intelligence. And you, you, how do you tailor something that's contextually appropriate for Japan to somebody who's you know, in uh, Chile or Argentina, where we also 
do a lot of work. And um, so we haven't cracked that nut yet. But what I really am looking forward to in, in this whole new area for me is thinking about how all this works in artificial intelligence and how we might create such an environment to do this that, that holds on to that dynamic. That I was first engaged in artificial intelligence just in terms of uh, mitigating the bias in artificial intelligence. How do we do that? How do we make it ethical? And I, of course, uh, thought one of the ways in which we can mitigate it and make it ethical is drawing from the experience of individuals who know what bias is and can identify bias. So, but to me, one of the greatest aspects, everybody moans and groans about artificial intelligence takeaway jobs. And I think it can create a whole different category of jobs where in essence you have people who are 50 years or older being like the guardians of it, almost in a sense, again, just like we said earlier, they don't have to know all the technology answers. The young people know all the technology answers, but they don't know the questions to ask. And the seniors know the questions to ask. So again, it's that kind of forced mentoring, cross-mentoring experience. And it's always cross-mentoring. The mentee receives as much as the mentor in these experiences. And I don't know if artificial intelligence is going to come up with an environment as dynamic as the in-person environment, but I think it's not just a great challenge, but a huge opportunity uh, to create a more interconnected world by using this medium. It's, it's going to be fascinating, and, and uh, I just love the fact that I'm just learning about it and seeing applications for it in my own work but seeing even broader applications of it for society because we always talk about aging and how individuals age. But what we really need to be thinking about is how societies age and how do we age them in a healthy, connected manner. Jeff and I are both optimists in, in that sense. And one of the phrases we hear often in the AI world is that eventually, the AI will know you better than you know yourself. <laughs> I think there are reasons to be skeptical of that, um, but it could create that kind of environment that you're talking about. If the AI can analyze your entrepreneurial instincts or capabilities or strengths and convince you of those, then you know, there's a positive confidence-generating kind of relationship you could have with the AI. So it's interesting to speculate. Absolutely. And I think if nothing else, and I know that's ridiculous because there's many, many aspects it's going to impact our lives. But I think to me, one of the most significant things, and certainly for me personally, it helps me think better. Because if I think about artificial intelligence and language and all the different aspects of it, it really helps me think better and articulate my thoughts and, and how to solve different problems and challenges. So I think that's already a tremendous asset of AI and one that really hasn't, we haven't heard too much about that. We think about it replacing human thought and analysis, but we haven't, I haven't heard too much about the ways in which it enhances human thought and analysis. Well, Elizabeth, thank you. It's time for me to hand over to Jeff and he'll wrap up, but we've got plenty more to talk about and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. I would love to do that. Thank you very much for asking me to do this.
wonderful Elizabeth and uh, you certainly have brought out the better aspect of ourselves through your work um, and uh, there's nothing artificial about it so uh, thank, you. thank you so much uh, this has been a great delight and uh, we look forward to following up with you. I do as well thank you both so much and happy new year <laughs>